Would you take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah 40? And we're going to be working through this chapter this morning. And um, I'll get a podium over here. That'll help me too. (laughs) But um, as we go through this text, it is a longer passage of Scripture. So there's going to be a little bit of speed preaching this morning as I go through this text. (laughs) And I'd encourage you to have your Bibles open to follow along. I'm not going to read it at the beginning, but I'm going to read it and refer to it as we go through the text. So if you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like to follow along, there are some uh, under the chairs where you are sitting. Isaiah chapter 40. Let's pray. Father, as we work through this text this morning, would you speak to our hearts words of encouragement, words of hope, words of power because of who you are, and help us to hear this passage of Scripture today in its context, but also to see then how it applies to us so clearly as well. In Jesus' name, amen. There are times in our life when we may wonder, Does God see? Does he care? Does he know what's going on in our world and why doesn't he do something? And we cry out or we long for our Lord to return. We've seen that this week. We look at the violence that takes place in our society and we see the racial tension that is there, the arrest of Philando Castile that was shown in a video and we see part of the story and we don't know the whole story and people make decisions based upon that and there is anger. We heard what took place in Dallas when many police officers were shot and five of those officers were killed. And there are other states in which there have been these attacks or ambushes on police and we pray for our law enforcement personnel. They do not have an easy job. And they are that thin blue line, if you will, between a society that is free and open and a society that leads to anarchy. We also hear about the terrorist attacks that have happened in Istanbul, Turkey, in Bangladesh, and Iraq, and Saudi Arabia, before that, and Paris, France. And we almost become numb to it. I mean, so many are happening that we forget that, oh yeah, it wasn't that long ago that we had that shooting that took place in San Bernardino or the one in Florida, and we just kind of move on. It's almost like that has become the norm. And we cry out, God, what's going on in our world? There are other issues that concern us, especially as believers, we are concerned about religious freedom. There was a new law passed in California that would force all Christian schools, colleges, universities to comply with the new opinions on gender and sexuality. And if they do not comply with that, they will lose their government funding. In addition, there are these restrictions that they want to place on religious institutions in that it is okay to talk about the Bible and what you think that means when you are training pastors or clergy, but for everybody else in that university system, even though it may be a Christian university, uh, no, you can't teach that. You need to teach what the state says is right and wrong. And it is shocking, these kind of things. Sometimes when we hear these things, we go, uh, we go I, I can't even hardly believe this is happening in America. Where is the religious freedom? I mean, we think of that in other parts of the world. In Russia, for example, just this week, Putin issued a law that forbids any missionary activity outside the walls of a religious facility. 
It is punishable by a fine of $15,000 and or prison. It is turning the clock back in Russia to becoming a police state. And Satan, the enemy of our souls, is the one behind all of these things that are moving to restrict religious freedom, that are trying to silence the voice of God in the public circle. And we are looking for leadership in our country. We're concerned about our nation. We're looking for someone who will stand up and speak the truth about these things. And I don't know where you stand on the current presidential election, but many of us are shaking our heads and wondering, how do we get to the point where the two most disliked people in presidential history are the presumptive nominees for their parties? Where 64% of the people say, I would never vote for this person, 61% would say, I'd never vote for this person? There's frustration and anger when it comes to even leadership in our government. That's how Israel felt at many points in their history. When they were being overrun by their enemies. When wicked kings reigned in Jerusalem and in Samaria. When evil men prospered and good men suffered. And we get a glimpse of that in, that, in this particular passage in verse 27 when they were saying, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. There were people who were calling out wondering, God, don't you see? Don't you hear? Don't you care what is going on? And Isaiah 40 is God's answer to those questions. And it is powerful. He tells us in verses 1 to 11 that God cares for his people. And you look at this, and it begins with these words, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. In chapters 1 to 39, the dominant message has been one of warning. He warns them about this judgment that is going to come unless they turn from their sin and repent. He's calling them to put their trust in him, not in these surrounding nations, not in their military might, not in their own human wisdom, but to listen to the word of God and to turn from their sin or judgment and wrath will come. In Isaiah chapter 6, in a passage we looked at, Isaiah asked him, how long, Lord, am I to preach this message? How long am I to say this? And the Lord answered, until cities lie ruined and houses are deserted. And that is what happened. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians. They were carried off into captivity. They were scattered and they were destroyed. And then in chapter 39, Isaiah predicts the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And it would be more than 100 years later that this would occur, 586 B.C., but it would come to pass just as God had said. Isaiah is now 69 years old, and God gives them a new message. A little side note, I was actually encouraged by that. 69 years old means I have a few more years I can keep going here. No, and... and um, he was, he was preaching this message of comfort and hope to a people who have suffered much. 
comfort. Comfort my people. Stated two times for emphasis, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And he speaks of a voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. For every valley shall be raised up, and every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And what we see here is a prophecy that is so familiar to us. The voice of one calling in the desert. All the Gospels apply to John the Baptist and his ministry as the forerunner of Jesus. And what is he announcing? He's announcing that the true king is coming. The true one in whom we are to put our hope. The one who is the Lord of glory himself who is going to come to us. And so prepare this way. Do everything that we can to get that word out. And a voice says, cry out. And I say, what shall I cry? Cry out that all men are like grass. All their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. He's making this comment that when we look at our world and you think about those world leaders and whether they are presidents or kings, whether they are tyrants or dictators, whether they are atheists or skeptics, God is not harmed by them. God is not worried about them. Because all men are like grass and they will pass away but the word of our God stands forever. God will not be mocked. His word is true, and it doesn't matter how many people rail against it, and it doesn't matter what public opinion may be swayed one way or the other, or what laws that are passed by states will say trying to restrict this freedom. The word of our God is eternal, and it stands forever. And you come to this passage, and he says to us in verse 9, to you who bring good tidings to Zion, to you who know this God, to you who have placed your trust in Christ, in his Messiah, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up and do not be afraid. Don't be intimidated. Don't let others silence you but declare to the cities of Judah, to our world, behold your God. It is a powerful message, calling us to be bold as witnesses. And he will say, see, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him, his recompense accompanies him. And he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently, yield, lead, excuse me, he gently leads those that have young. It is a picture of a shepherd who is tender, who is caring, who knows his flock, and who loves him. 
that is our God. He cares for his people. There's a story that Peggy Noonan tells about when President, uh, when Ronald Reagan was the president. And there was a situation that occurred in his days in office there that was kind of an interesting glimpse into his life and character. There was a woman named Frances Green. She was 83 years old. She lived by herself. She lived on Social Security. She lived just outside of San Francisco. And she had very little money. But for eight years, she had been sending $1 a year to the Republican National Committee. And then one day, Frances got an RNC fundraising letter in the mail, a beautiful piece on this printed, thick-colored paper, you know, with black and gold lettering. And it invited everybody who got this invitation to come to the White House to meet President Ronald Reagan. Well, she never noticed the little RSVP card that suggested that a positive reply should be accompanied by a very generous donation. (laughs) She thought she'd been invited because they appreciated her $1 a year support. So Frances scraped up every cent she had, took a four-day train ride across America. Unable to afford a sleeper, she sat up in coach, and finally she arrived at the White House gate, a little elderly woman with white hair, white powder all over her face, white stockings, an old hat with white netting, and an all-white dress, now yellow with age. And when she got up to the guard at the gate and gave her name, the man glanced down at the list and frowned and said her name was not there. She couldn't go in, and Frances Green was heartbroken. Well, there was a Ford Motor Company executive who was standing in line behind her, and he kind of watched and listened to what was happening. And he pulled her aside, and he wanted to talk to her to hear her story. And then he asked her to return at 9 the next morning and meet him there, and he would make contact with Ann Higgins, who was a presidential aide. And he got her clearance to go into the White House for a tour. Well, the next day was anything but calm and easy at the White House. Ed Meese had just resigned. There had been a military uprising abroad. Reagan was in and out of high-level secret sessions. But Francis Green showed up at 9 o'clock full of expectation and enthusiasm. The executive met her, gave her a wonderful tour of the White House, and then quietly led her by the Oval Office, thinking that maybe at best she might get a quick glimpse of the president on her way out. Members of the National Security Council came out, high-ranking generals were coming and going, and in the midst of all the hubbub, President Reagan glanced out and saw Francis Green. And with a smile, he gestured her into his office. And as she entered, he rose from the desk and he called out, Francis, those darn computers, they fouled up again. If I'd known you were coming, I would have come out there to get you myself. And he invited her into his office to sit down, and they talked leisurely about California, her town, her life, and family. The President of the United States gave Francis Green a lot of time that day, more time than some thought he had to give. And when I think about that story, and I think about the most powerful man in the world giving time for an ordinary person, I think of the God of the universe who never turns us away and who has time for you and me to come into his very presence with our needs, with our concerns, with what's going on in our life, 
and he cares for us like that tender shepherd. Secondly, this passage teaches us that God is bigger than our problems. How big is our God? Well, listen to how Isaiah describes him in verses 12 to 26. And again, I'm just going to walk through these and making some comments along the way. He describes God as bigger than the universe. He says, who, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breath of his hands marked off the heavens? God holds the oceans in his hands. When he marks off the distance between the stars, it's with the span of his hand. Let's see how far is it from here to here and the galaxies to the galaxies. He needs no counselors. We say that in verses 13 and 14. Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? Who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? What we don't get when we read that is the context in which Isaiah is speaking. At that point in history, this was extremely rare. This was unusual to believe in one God. The nations around them all had multiple gods, and they had a chief god like Marduk, who was the chief god of the Babylonians, or Baal as the chief god of the Canaanites, or you had these different deities, and they had their other gods that they would consult and make decisions, and what Isaiah is saying is that our God is not like that at all. Our God is not one of many gods. Our God needs no counselors, no advisors. He has all knowledge and full and complete knowledge of everything that is going on in our world. And he is all-powerful, and nothing takes him by surprise. God is bigger than the nations, verses 15 to 17. Surely the nations are like a drop in the bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Lebanon was renowned for its cedars. They were the best cedars for shipbuilding. People would travel or want to export these logs so that they could bring them to their countries to make these great ships. Kings used their cedar to panel their palaces, their places of worship. And Isaiah is saying, if you took all the cedars of Lebanon and piled them up, they would not be enough for an offering for our God. They spoke about the cedars of Lebanon like we talk about the redwoods in California or the sequoias. And you think about piling all those up and putting all the animals in the state of California on an altar and it is not worthy of our God. God is greater than any other God, verses 18 to 20. And he's going to talk about this more in later chapters, that the gods of the nations are idols. They are no gods at all. Verse 18, to whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it. And a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple, and then he bows down before it and prays to it as his God. And it is folly. 
God is sovereign over men and nations, verses 21 to 24. He's the one who appoints people to leadership. He's the one who brings them down. He is the Lord of history. And in verses 25 and 26, he says God is the creator and sustainer of the universe. Alan Ross wrote in his commentary that in the Old Testament, the word for create is bara, as in, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what that word implies is that it was out of nothing. And that word bara is only used of something God will do. When it comes to making things, it will say in the Hebrew that God, I mean that man can make things, he can form things, he can build things, but only God can create something out of nothing. Our universe is so great that it's hard for us to comprehend the size of it. Philip Yancey was trying to give an illustration. He said, you know, if the Milky Way that we are a part of, just this one galaxy out of what they say are billions of galaxies in the universe, if you took that one galaxy, the Milky Way, and say that was the size of the entire continent of North America, our solar system would fit inside a coffee cup. I've been thinking about that every day as I'm having my coffee. I'm looking at my coffee cup and thinking of the entire solar system right there inside that coffee cup. Why did God create something so big? I think he did it to show his greatness, his might, his power. He's the one who knows the stars by name. He's the one who set them all in place. And what is man? that God even cares for us or is mindful of us. Yeah, but some say, how do you know God made it? How do we know it didn't happen by chance? I love the story that's told about Sir Isaac Newton, where in his days as a scientist, he had an exact replica of the solar system made for his you know, laboratory where he would do his work. And it took a lot of, you know, mechanization to get this thing to function with its spheres and its cogs and its pulleys and you got the sun in the center and you got mercury and venus and earth and mars you got all the planets there and they're all moving when you spun this thing they all moved in the rotation at their time and it took a lot of engineering to figure it out well he had a friend who did not believe the biblical account of creation who one day stopped by and he saw this device, and he was so amazed, he was marveling at it, and he goes, you know, Isaac, who built this thing? And without look, looking up, Sir Isaac replied, nobody. And he goes, nobody? And Isaac said, that's right. I said, nobody. All of these balls and cocks and belts and gears just happened to come together and wonder of wonders, by chance, they began revolving in their set orbits with perfect timing. His friend got the message. God is bigger than our problems. And thirdly, God gives strength to those who wait on him. And we see that in verses 27 to 31. God gives strength to those who wait upon him. In verse 27, he says that the Lord is the everlasting God. And he is the one who watches over us. He's the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. His understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. 
Even youth grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord, some say those who wait in the Lord or wait on the Lord, will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. The Lord is the everlasting God. He never gets tired or weary. His understanding is more than we can comprehend. We are often bewildered, but God is not. We are people who are prone to get tired and weary, discouraged. We can lose heart. We can look at our world and think the problems are so big. How is this ever going to change? But God is greater than our problems. And for those who hope in him, and literally it means to wait on him, he renews our strength. To wait on the Lord is to place our confidence and trust in him and his timing. To wait on the Lord doesn't mean that we do nothing. No, while we wait, we serve, we work, we obey, we follow him, we pray, we act, we do those things that he has called us to do, but we wait patiently for God in his timing to act. The word renew in Hebrew means to exchange. We exchange our weakness for his strength. We come to him in prayer. We bow before him. We pour out our burdens to the Lord. We ask for his strength, and he is the one who fills us and lifts us up. And when we trust in his promises and we act on them, he enables us to do the impossible, to fly like the eagles. And he calls us to these different areas of ministry, to the work that we do that in the eyes of the world may look like foolishness. And yet God is at work in powerful ways. And when we wait upon him, he gives us his very best in his time. There's a story that was told by Pastor H.B. Charles in his book, It Happens After Prayer. And he talked about a woman that he knew who one day went to the farmer's produce stand near where she lived, and she wanted to buy some grapes. And the line was long that day, and each person who was at the front seemed to get special attention, but she waited patiently. She was kind of in a hurry, and she was a little, you know, kind of, can we get this thing moving along? And finally, she gets to the front of the line, and the farmer takes her order, and then he says, excuse me. And he steps out of this tent and he goes behind and she can't see what he's doing or where he went, but it's taken a long time, at least too long for her. And frankly, she was offended. She felt that this guy was taking her business for granted and the longer she waited, the angrier he became, she became. And finally, the owner of the produce stand reappeared and with a big smile, he presented her with the best grapes he had. They were beautiful. He asked her to taste them. They tasted delicious. And she bought them that day. And as he was finishing up with her, he leaned over and he said, I'm sorry I kept you waiting, but I needed the time to get you my very best. And I think about God, who asks us to wait upon him because he longs to give us his very best. Don't stop praying. Don't get out of line. 
Keep waiting on God, putting your trust and your hope in Him. What are the struggles that you are facing? Remember what Isaiah tells us here, that God cares for His people, that God is bigger than our problems, and that God gives strength to those who will wait on Him. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you, each of us have needs that are on our heart that come to mind immediately. And God, I pray that you would encourage us today to do what Isaiah says, that we would wait upon you and find our strength in you, that you would be that rock that we've been talking about, the rock eternal for each of us in our changing world, and that you would work through your people and through your church to bring change. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. We do not have a closing song today on our communion Sunday, but I'd ask you to stand for this benediction as we close. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.